Well, good morning once again. The Lord's word to us this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 18. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 18. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to look at it with me. Uh, it will not be up on the screen in front of you. Uh, we do that on purpose because we, we think it's best if you can stare at it in your own Bible uh, and stare at it multiple times because we'll be going back to verses over and over again. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's perfectly okay. Uh, you can uh, take one of those Bibles on the pew in front of you, and 1 John is almost toward the end of your Bible. 1 John chapter 3, here in just a moment, starting in verse 18. Now today, in John's text, he introduces to us, or at least introduces for his book, he introduces this concept of the conscience. The concept of the conscience. Every single one of us has a conscience, but what is it? How are we supposed to think about it? Now, the book of 1 John as a whole is all about assurance, right? We've been going over this. We've been hammering it over and over again. The book of 1 John is all about assurance. How do we know whether we are saved? How can we be assured that Christ will claim us as his children when we face the judgment? But naturally then, the question comes up, what about these internal feelings that I have? What part do my feelings play? Specifically, my feelings of guilt. The feelings of guilt that I often have. What place do those feelings have in this discussion on how to know whether or not we are saved? Do my feelings matter? Are they accurate? Should I listen to them or not? Now, all of those questions center around this concept of our conscience. But there's so much misunderstanding on this topic in the world today. So much misunderstanding. Have you ever seen a cartoon that tried to depict someone's conscience with a small little angel on the person's one shoulder and on the other shoulder was a small little devil and you know they're, they're trying to argue for whether or not this person should or should not do something, all right? I mean, this is so common knowledge. It's such a common experience, the conscience and these feelings, that even the non-believing world will acknowledge the presence of this conscience that God has given us. But it's so hard to put our finger on how exactly our consciences work. And thankfully, God's Word has a lot to say on this topic. And so let's look at our text. Now, as we get into our text, I'll point out to you, at least in my ESV, John doesn't use the word conscience. He uses the word hearts, or hearts. But as you see in the text, conscience is a perfectly acceptable way to interpret that word hearts. In fact, one of the better translations out there, one of the better Bible translations out there is the NET Bible, N-E-T, the New English Translation. It's actually a free online translation. And in that Bible, they'll translate this, instead of hearts, they'll translate it conscience. And I think they're justified in doing so. But let's look at the, the, the version that I have, the ESV. And if you're reading out of a, another version, that's perfectly fine. But John, 1 John 3, starting in verse 18 We'll read to verses 24. It says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, 
that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, Look back in your text, in your copy, and in my copy. Do you see how over and over again, starting in verse 19, he talks about the heart? We reassure our heart before him, for whenever our heart condemns us, he's talking about our consciences there, okay? He's talking about our consciences. Now, I will admit, this is one of the harder passages in the Bible to interpret because of the ambiguity of the language, right? The grammar's not exactly clear here. And this is going to happen to you every now and then as you go through your Bible. I mean, think about this. We are translating languages that are not spoken in the same way anymore from men that wrote these languages, these books, 2,000 years ago in the Old Testament, older than that. We don't have these guys around to explain to us what exactly they meant. Inevitably, there's going to be some things that are lost in translation, so to speak. There are going to be some concepts that we don't have certain words for that they did and vice versa. And so every now and then you'll run across a Bible passage that's honestly just a little bit hard to understand what, what the author's actually trying to get across. And this is one of them. Like, for instance, in verse 19, it says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Well, when he says by this, does he refer to the verse previous or the verse after? What's he really talking about this? Verse 20, should we listen to our heart or should we not listen to our heart? It's kind of confusing, honestly. And you're going to run into times in your own Bible reading where a passage is going to confuse you. One of the things that I would encourage you to do in those times is consult another translation. Consult a different translation in your own Bible reading. Now let me take just a minute to talk about this because it's an important concept. I pray that you are reading the Bible for yourself. I pray that you are reading the Bible for yourself. The greatest thing you could do to grow spiritually, to grow in your love for God and your spiritual maturity is to read the Bible on your own a little bit every day. That's the number one thing you could ever do to grow in your relationship with Christ and your relationship with God and your spiritual maturity. But as you're doing so and you come across a passage like this and you don't understand it fully, it can be super helpful to look at other translations. All right, One of the easiest ways to do this is to have an app on your phone or perhaps an iPad like the version Bible app where you can have access to 30 different translations with the click of a button. But you can also have multiple Bibles in your house. You know, you can get hard copies of some good translation other than the one you typically read. So if you're typically reading out of the New International Version, you might consult what the ESV says on that passage. Or if you're typically like me reading out of the ESV, you might consult what the Christian Standard Bible, for instance, says on that passage. Now, as I was studying... What helped me a lot was the message translation here, right? And I'm going to read it for you here in just a second. I'll actually have it up on the screen. But the message translation sheds a lot of light on this passage that can be kind of confusing. Now, I need to make a little note before we get into it, though. The message translation is a little bit different, right? The message translation was done by one man, a man I greatly respect, actually. His name's Eugene Peterson. He died last year. Uh, But one man. You don't want a Bible translation done by one man to be your primary Bible reading translation. Now, why is that? Well, because we all have our biases, right? 
And we can't help it. We all do. We all have our certain biases in the ways that we interpret the Bible. And that's going to come through anytime someone translates the New Testament out of the Greek manuscripts or the Old Testament from Hebrew. It's going to come through. Right? So you don't want to be reading for your main translation something that one man translated, although it can be helpful. Much like in the Old Testament, there's some really good Old Testament translations by Hebrew experts that can be helpful. But you don't want to be doing that in your normal Bible reading. You want a translation but done by a committee of men and women, Bible experts who have access to thousands of manuscripts that one man wouldn't have access to. Why? Why is this so important? Why is it important to talk about how we study the Bible? Because these are the words of God. These are the words of the creator of the universe. There's power here that does not exist in any other book. There's a supernatural power to change your heart, to spark faith inside of you that does not exist elsewhere in any other book, no matter how important it is. These are the words of God. And God inspired the original authors. God inspired the original authors to write down his words. So not every single translation that will occur into the future is guaranteed to have every single word right. We want a translation that gets as close to those original words as humanly possible because that's where the power is. The power is in the words that God inspired. And so it matters what translation you use as you read the Bible on your own at home to grow in Christ spiritually. Right? So, having said all of that, end of sidebar, Let's look at the message translation and see how it helps us understand 1 John 3, 18-24 here. It's going to be up on the screen. I'll read it to you out loud. It says, My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down, this is interesting and helpful, to shut down debilitating self-criticism even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. We're able to stretch our hands out and receive what we asked for because we are doing what He said, doing what pleases Him. You see how that helps? Just the, the normal everyday language, it's a paraphrased translation, but that can be helpful to have around. I would not encourage you to be reading the message on your own every day, but it's very helpful to have around. Okay, so what can we take from 1 John 3, 18 through 24 here? What can we take away this morning? Well, a couple things. Number one, your conscience is a barometer for your spiritual status if it's well-informed. Okay? Your conscience is a barometer for your spiritual status, but only if it's well-informed, okay? Our consciences are not infallible tools. They're not. They can be fallible, but they can be trained to work properly. You have a conscience, just like I do, that can be trained to work properly, to work the way it's supposed to. So, for example, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, we read this. But solid food is for the mature... For those who have their powers of discernment, you hear the hint of conscience there? Their power of discernment 
trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? You can train your conscience to work the way it's supposed to. And we have to do that. If you want your conscience to be reliable, you have to train it to work the way it's supposed to. How do you do that? Well, by constant practice, Hebrews says, which means constant going against the things that are evil, saying no to evil and saying yes to the good. Your conscience is a guide to what is good and what is bad given to you by God, but not just to Christians. God gives a conscience to every human being, even non-believers. And so you can train it slowly but surely to work properly if you follow where it leads. But also you have to have it well informed. Okay, so this means sitting under good biblical teaching consistently. This means reading your Bible consistently and talking about it with other people, trying to interpret it and making sure you understand it in the right way. But if you consistently do those things, you will have a conscience that works the way it's supposed to because it's well informed. It's been trained to do what it's supposed to. But your conscience can also be distorted. Your conscience can also be distorted and messed up. Some people have overburdened consciences. Overburdened consciences. They've not been taught well. They've been taught that some things are biblical law, when in actuality those are matters of opinion or perhaps traditions of men. Some people feel so guilty all the time. They're riddled with guilt that they don't have to feel because perhaps they are convinced that they have committed the unforgivable sin or, or something like that. But you can have an overburdened conscience. That's one of the ways your conscience can be distorted. It can be sending you signals of guilt when you shouldn't actually be feeling guilty. Right? But on the other hand, some people have what we call seared consciences. You can sear your conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about. You can sear it as with a hot iron, it says. So, for instance, you can distort your conscience to where it doesn't feel what it's supposed to feel anymore. I mean, think about what it would be like if you put a hot iron on your skin and just left it there for a while. Well, after a while, your skin is going to callous over and burn, and you will not feel right there in that portion of your skin. You will not feel what you're supposed to feel. We can do the same thing to our conscience, right? I play guitar, and on the tips of the fingers of my left hand, I don't feel hardly anything, right? They're calloused over. I've got these calluses on my fingers. I don't feel hardly anything. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happens because I constantly went against what the pain receptors at the ends of my fingers were telling my brain. I constantly went against that. I said no to it, and I kept pressing down hard on those metal strings, even though it hurt like crazy. I just kept doing it until the point to where I didn't feel it anymore. And now I can press down on guitar strings and not feel a thing. And that can actually be dangerous because if you were to poke me with a needle or something on the edge of my finger, I wouldn't feel it, right? My pain receptors don't work the way they're supposed to on the tips of my fingers. This is what we do to our consciences. If, Like when I was learning to play guitar, if we constantly go against what our conscience is telling us. If your conscience keeps telling you that something is wrong and you keep shutting it down, suppressing the feeling, and doing that thing anyway, pretty soon your conscience will sear over and it will not feel what it's supposed to feel anymore. And it will not be a reliable guide for you. 
And so all this to say your conscience can be a barometer of your spiritual status if it is well informed. But Satan wants to get you to go against your conscience so that you do not have the proper signals coming from God. In fact, John MacArthur once said, Satan, in order to literally send men to hell on a greased slide, wants to neutralize the conscience. And I think he's exactly right there. All right, but second, we take from our text this morning, second, God's Word stands above our consciences. There's good news here. God's Word stands above your conscience. You are going to have times where your conscience condemns you. John says it right here, right? Verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, verse 20, what does he say after that? Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our conscience. And I'm going to take that a step further this morning and say, I think John is referring specifically to how God has revealed himself to us in his word. God's word stands above our consciences. Sometimes your conscience will give you a condemning attack. It's like an attack from Satan, where your conscience is not working properly. It's trying to condemn you. But there will be other times, brothers and sisters, where your conscience will give you a feeling of guilt that is justified, where there's truth in it. And in both instances, John is telling us your conscience is not the final authority. Your conscience is not the final authority. It's not the highest court. God's word stands above our consciences. When our guilt is overwhelming, what we do is we reassure ourselves with the objective truth of the word of God. When our guilt is overwhelming, we assure ourselves with the objective, not subjective, according to my feelings, the objective truth of the Word of God. Martin Luther used to call the Bible the external Word. Isn't that interesting? The external Word. Why is that important? Well, because it's outside of you, right? It's not based on how you feel. It's outside of you. Other people can look at the same Word that you are looking at. We can all go to the same truth. It's there for us all. It's outside of us. And praise the Lord it's outside of us because I'm like this. I'm up and down all the time. I don't know what to trust in myself, but I can always look at this. It never changes. It's not inside of me. It's outside of me. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, said that most of our spiritual problems come from the fact that we are listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. Think about that. We're listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. What does that mean? Well, you can't just listen to everything that comes into your head. You have to preach to yourself. You have to correct your doubts and unbiblical thoughts with truth from the external Word of God. And so when that debilitating guilt comes into my life, I'm going right for Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's power right there against the accusing thoughts of my conscience that doesn't always work properly, against the accusing guilt that comes from Satan. Or Romans 8, 33-34, where Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is to condemn? Well, your conscience sometimes will condemn you. John says your heart here will sometimes condemn you. Sometimes there will be truth in those accusations of guilt, but that's when you start preaching to yourself. And you say things like, okay, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I deserve condemnation. But Jesus died for me. More than that, he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. And right now, he's at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for me. That's the external truth to use against those feelings of condemnation and guilt that come up so much in our lives. We preach to ourselves. We correct our doubts and our feelings of guilt with the external truth of God's Word. Now, when those feelings of guilt come and there's truth in them, if you are in Christ, you can go to where I just went and you can say that about yourself. But if you are not in Christ, let me plead with you this morning to listen to your conscience. Listen to the conscience that God gave to you. If you are feeling guilty of your sin, if you feel like you do not have rest when you think about eternity, listen to your conscience. Give in to it. God is gently calling you to himself. And he wants you to be free of the burden of sin. He wants you to find salvation in Jesus Christ. He wants you to have rest in your soul, in your conscience. And so finally, this morning from our text, we, we see that one mark of a true believer is a clear conscience before God. One mark of a true believer is a clear conscience before God. Verse 21 there. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if our conscience does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence before God. Now, how in the world can anyone have a clear conscience before God? Think about this. Think about how holy and righteous and perfect the Lord is. Think about His standard for every single one of us, which is perfection, perfect obedience to His Word. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. How are you measuring up to that one? Right? How can you have a clear conscience before God when we know we're sinful? Terry mentioned this in his prayer. We know every single one of us stands guilty before God. How can you have a clear conscience before this holy, righteous God who has a perfect standard? Well, it's not that you never feel guilt over your sin. That's not what John is referring to with a, a heart that does not condemn you or a clear conscience. It's not that you never feel guilty for your sin, but in your heart and your mind you can rest assured in Christ's finished work for you on the cross. That is a clear conscience before the Lord. Resting assured in Jesus' finished work for you on the cross. Christ is your propitiation. He has taken the wrath of God, as we just sung about. 
He has taken the wrath of God for your sins if you have placed your faith in Him and repented and been baptized. You can rest in Christ with a clear conscience, even though you still have sins that you struggle with. Right? Hebrews 4 talks about the confidence that we have in approaching God's throne. But why do we approach the throne of God with confidence? Well, in Hebrews 4, it tells us, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who has suffered and died for us, who lived on this earth and experienced all the temptations that we experienced, yet was without sin. That's how we can approach God's throne with confidence. Not because there's anything in me that deserves confidence. It's Christ. That's how you can have a clear conscience. You come to God in confidence only by Christ. He's your only plea. In the end, at the judgment day, if God were to ask every single one of us, why should I let you into heaven? The only thing we have is Christ. That's it. Nothing else. And that's enough. That's enough. It's the only way you get in. You can't say anything about your good deeds that God says are like filthy rags before him when you try to buy your way into his favor. The only plea we have is Christ. I'm with him. That, that's all I've got. That's all I've got. And it's enough. It's more than enough for anyone. How do you have a clear conscience, a confidence before this holy, righteous God? Only by Christ. 1 Peter 3.21, which is one of the, the passages that we always refer to when we talk about baptism, but watch what it says about the conscience. Peter writes, baptism, which corresponds to this, and he's talking about Noah actually there. He's talking about Noah and his family being saved through water by the ark, you know. So baptism, which corresponds to this, he says, now saves you. He says baptism saves you. Uh-oh, are we getting into works righteousness here? Are we getting into what people have accused certain denominations of baptismal regeneration? No. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, it's not because you get dunked under the water, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how in the world could you get a clear conscience from getting baptized? Well, it's because it's not about your works. You don't get a clear conscience before God by being a good person and trying really hard. That's going to that's give you the opposite of a clear conscience. You're never going to have assurance of salvation if you try to get to heaven by your own goodness. You're never going to know if you're good enough. But you get a clear conscience when you go under those waters of baptism and you come up and God has promised in his word that when we do that by faith and repentance, he grants us the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it's only by Christ that we have a clear conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter says. And so if you understand this morning that you cannot be saved by your good works, but you can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, then you can have a clear conscience. And let me tell you, that's the only way. Otherwise, your conscience will never be clear. Our seminary professor used to tell us the only way to have assurance of your salvation is to understand grace. Because every single one of us deserves hell. And the only people who are not going to get it 
are those who are coming to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so do you want a clear conscience this morning? You can have it, but you can only have it in Christ. You can't have it by going out here and trying to be a really good person for the next week. That will give you the opposite of a clear conscience. But in Christ, every single one of us can have it because none of us deserve God. And yet he gives of himself freely if we come to him through his son, Jesus. Let's pray.